What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I have a special episode for you guys today. We're going to kick things off by closing the door on the Super Bowl numbers, including viewership, ad sales, the Taylor Swift effect, and more. We'll also talk about Tiger Woods' new brand, Sunday Red, with TaylorMade. But the meat of this episode is going to be an exclusive interview with NASCAR president Steve Phelps. NASCAR has the Daytona 500 this weekend, so I sat down with Steve to discuss everything NASCAR, including their new series on Netflix, their new media rights deals, future race plans, including potentially international expansion. And Steve even breaks some news on a new ambassador program where NASCAR itself will be paying its drivers to promote the series. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. But before we get into it, let's quickly hear from today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Winter can be a drag. Thankfully, we have sports to get us through the early part of the year. If you ask me, nothing goes together quite like food and sports, especially this time of year. I mean, we got football on, college and pro hoops, hockey. So let's just say I may be plopped down on my couch until the temperature hits the 80s again. And the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card provides the perfect way to earn rewards. Whether you're watching your team with other super fans at a local eatery or in the comfort of your own living room. I know me personally, there's nothing better than ordering wings, sitting on my own couch, and watching sports. You can earn four times points when you dine out or have food delivered. I mean, those wings do sound pretty damn good. Plus, earn two times points at grocery stores. Maybe you want to cook the wings yourself. And if you're willing to brave the elements, even getting to the game can be rewarding as you'll earn two times points at gas stations and EV charging stations. So go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Score big with the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply and live every day your way. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is US Bank National Association, Pursue it to a license from Visa USA Incorporated. Some restrictions may apply. All right, let's start with the Super Bowl. Now, I don't want to spend too much more time on the Super Bowl. We talked about it numerous times at length last week, including this past week on Tuesday after the game. But a few more additional numbers have come in that I want to break down for you guys. So for those that don't know, CBS hosted the game this year. CBS pays the NFL $2.1 billion a year for its NFL package. Now, they don't get the Super Bowl every year. The Super Bowl rotates through a cast of characters. CBS, Fox, ESPN even has a couple in the upcoming years. And CBS also gets a host of other games, too. They have a package where they get the AFC uh, Sunday window that includes games on Christmas Day, Thanksgiving, and a bunch of other great games, too. So their viewership was up tremendously this year. They had a great year overall. And closing it out with the Super Bowl is tremendous, especially considering the game had a record 123.4 million average viewers. Now, I don't want to toot my horn too much here, but you guys heard me. I said I predicted 122 million viewers for this game. I was a little bit off, but directionally correct, considering that the previous record was 115 million. That's a huge, huge, huge number. And CBS says they had a total unduplicated audience of 202.4 million. Again, the highest on records. That means that over 200 million people tuned into the game for at least six minutes. That's up 10% versus last year. And the more interesting part to me is the business behind this for CBS. Now, specifically speaking about CBS, the majority of the money made from this game comes via ad revenue. We've talked about the commercials. They were going for, on average, a little over $6 million, with some brands paying up to $7 million or more for 30-second slots. 
Now, before the game started, it was estimated that CVS was going to take in around $650 million plus or minus in ad revenue from, again, this one game alone, the Super Bowl. We know that because we can do the math on how much the average commercial was going for and how many are going to be played during the game. Plus, Fox, during their earnings call last year, specifically told us that they made $650 million in advertising revenue during last year's Super Bowl. So we had an indication that, okay, plus or minus $650 million. But the reason why it actually went higher, closer to probably $700 million, is because this game went into overtime. Now, I've gotten a lot of questions around this. How do they sell the ads? How much additional value is it worth? What are the commercials worth? And so forth. So I figured I would just explain to you guys exactly how this works. The way that overtime works for the Super Bowl is actually pretty simple. Whoever's running the Super Bowl that year will usually sell a number of ads extra on top of what they think they'll be able to run during the game. These are like contingency ads. And they can be used if something goes wrong with a pre-existing commercial, or in most cases, they can be used if a Super Bowl goes into overtime. Now, I think there was actually only one Super Bowl before this that went into overtime. It was the Patriots game from a few years ago. And the difference between those two games is that the Patriots game, for instance, only went a few minutes into overtime before they ended up winning that game. This game, this past Super Bowl, went the full length of overtime period. So the entire period it went through and CBS was able to plug, I think it was like eight to 10 different commercials. So if you add that up, given the amount of money they're able to charge for those commercials, it's, we'll call it 50, maybe $60 million in additional revenue that they were able to get specifically because of overtime. So if you want to add that on top of the $650 million in ad revenue, it's estimated that CBS probably made close to $700 million in ad revenue from this one game alone. Now, the reason why that's so important, again, is because they pay $2.1 billion every year for the NFL package, and they're making a huge sum of that back through this year's Super Bowl alone. Obviously, great numbers. And a huge part of this game, to be honest, was Taylor Swift. Now, I haven't been one of those people that's full on the Taylor Swift train saying that she's making this huge difference. In most cases, I actually think it's a really small or incremental difference in the overall viewership numbers. Football is a popular sport. Millions and millions and millions of people watch every single game. 50 million plus people typically watch the AFC and NFC championship games and 100 million people, give or take, usually watch the Super Bowl. So plus or minus, you know, 500,000, a million here or there isn't going to make a drastic difference in the overall number. But I think what she's done is she's built up this narrative across the entire season. And we saw that play out with the Super Bowl. If you look at female viewership specifically, which is obviously more akin to her fans, those two trends in different age gaps were up tremendously. For example, female viewership between ages 12 to 17 was up 11% year over year. Female viewership ages 18 to 24 was up 24% year over year. That's more than a million extra viewers, multiple millions of extra viewers that are watching the game, specifically in those age groups that are female fans. Nielsen also says that women represented 47.5%, nearly half of the total audience for this year's Super Bowl. That set another all-time record. Now, I don't necessarily think Taylor Swift was the sole driving force behind this. I mean, Usher performed during the halftime show. Many people were excited about that because the Super Bowl has essentially become a glorified halftime show in some regard anyways. But I do think that she probably paid a part of this. And it's one of the main reasons why the NFL was so happy with her being involved in this year's game. You guys all saw on television, Roger Goodell, commissioner, talking to her before the game. And many people were joking, hey, let's run it back next year. And I think that's an accurate display of how the NFL probably thinks about her inclusion in this year's not only game, but season-long atmosphere with the Kansas City Chiefs. Huge, huge, huge numbers. And Usher had a similar impact, not only in viewership, but what we've seen after the game. You guys all heard the podcast last week breaking down how the halftime show is used by these artists and leveraged by these artists to sell more tickets and increase their 
their streams and everything else alongside that. And we already saw this within the first 24 hours with Usher. His streams on Spotify increased more than 550%. His concert ticket prices also went up. The average price went up by 40%. And TickPick, my favorite ticketing platform, says that 38% of the total tickets they have sold for Usher's upcoming tour came after Sunday's game. Came after Sunday's game. And this was within 24 hours. So we're only talking about one day after the game. Obviously, the Super Bowl effect is real, and it is in full effect for Usher, Taylor Swift, and everyone else associated with the game. But that's enough about this year's Super Bowl. I want to move on to Tiger Woods' new clothing and apparel brand. Now, it's no secret that Tiger Woods and Nike ended their relationship after 27 years and more than a half billion dollars in payments at the end of last year. And now Tiger has announced his next venture. He's going to be wearing a clothing brand called Sunday Red. It's three different words. And TaylorMade is essentially saying that they chose three different words and broke up the word Sunday because it's more memorable in people's minds. That's neither here nor there. I don't think it's particularly great, but I'm sure it will grow on me. But the reason why this deal is so unique is because Tiger, for the first time in history, will have an equity share in this brand. He is going to be a partner with TaylorMade. It's going to be a separate entity than TaylorMade, although it will be run by a lot of TaylorMade employees. They'll hire a CEO to run it. They'll hire several other employees to be involved in the process. And this will be, it'll have its own headquarters and everything. It's going to be a separate brand than TaylorMade, although it will have some shared leadership. And this is very unique to me because when Tiger announced that he was going to be leaving Nike, there were like three options in my mind. Number one was partnering with TaylorMade. That was the most obvious option to me. He had a club deal with them already, and it was rumored they were trying to sign a number of other athletes to their clothing brand that was going to be launching or growing in the coming years. Number two was Grayson. I thought Grayson had a legitimate shot to land Tiger. They had Justin Thomas, who's one of his best friends on tour. They could give him an equity share. And it's a hot young brand that's clearly got uh, a foothold in the golf industry. And then number three was him launching his own brand. And what we ended up with was kind of like a quasi mix between number one and number three, which is going out with TaylorMade, but launching his own brand. And the reason why I didn't think he was going to launch his own brand by himself is because it takes a tremendous amount of work. Most people underestimate the work that's required to do this. If you look at your favorite celebrities today, anyone that has started and tried to exit or is trying to exit their own business, we're talking about The Rock with his tequila company. We're talking about Conor McGregor with his alcohol company. We're talking about you know any of these major athletes or, or ambassadors or entertainers that have their own products or businesses. They are promoting these things to no end. I've always made the joke that you can tell how much equity someone owns in the brand by how much promotion they're doing. A perfect example of this is Logan Paul and KSI with Prime. I mean, these guys are flying all over the world to do radio interviews, to do commercials, to do endorsement signings and everything else associated with this brand. And they're not doing it because they own 5%. No, these guys own a considerable amount of the brand and they're trying to make sure that they're able to help sell the brand for billions of dollars so they can get rich doing it. Now, the reason why that's so important to give as context is because Tiger Woods is, for one, obviously going to own a significant share of this brand. But two, it's going to require him to be much more open and much more public than he has in the past. I mean, if you think about Tiger Woods, do we really get all that much behind the scenes content about him? No, not at all. He's, he's relatively private. I mean, the guy literally has a yacht that's named his privacy. So he is a private person. He has never been one to be directly in the spotlight or inject himself into that, even though he has obviously been a very public figure over the years and he's made some mistakes that have put him in that spotlight himself. But ultimately, I think what's going to happen is he's going to have to show us more of him. It's going to be a lot of work, although I think it's a better option than entirely starting his own brand because he's going to be with TaylorMade and TaylorMade is going to be able to do a lot of the operational stuff behind the brand. He's just going to have to show up to appearances. He's going to have to let social media in on his life a little bit more than he did in the past. And more importantly, he's going to have to play. 
I mean, he he legitimately is going to have to play a little bit more probably than he wanted to before. Because if people don't see him on the course, if people don't see him wearing this stuff, they're not going to associate it with Tiger Woods. Obviously, Sunday red, red is his color. He's worn it in junior golf. He's worn it in college. He's worn it on Sundays in the pros. It's Tiger. We get it 100%. I think the name is going to grow on me. I think the clothing is going to grow on me. And I think people will end up buying a lot of this brand. But he has to play. He has to show that he's committed to the brand. He has to let people in and he has to promote the brand which as a golf fan is great. I want to see more of Tiger Woods. He's the biggest name in the sport today, even though he doesn't play as much as he used to. And it's good for the overall game to see more of Tiger Woods. So this is something that I'm going to be following because I'm very interested in seeing how Tiger approaches it as someone who's been private most of his life, if he's willing to put in the work to build this brand to somewhere where it needs to be. But I wouldn't bet against him. Tiger's name is synonymous with golf. He's the biggest person and the biggest personality that we've ever seen in golf. And it's going to take a lot for this brand to be successful. But if anyone can do it, it's Tiger partnering with an established brand that knows all about the supply chain, all, knows all about marketing, knows how to promote this to their existing customer base like Taylor. I'm excited to see what happens next. And as always, I will make sure to keep you guys updated as any numbers start coming through on sales or valuation or fundraising or anything outside of that that they may be looking at. But with that said, I want to move on to the final part of this podcast, which is an exclusive interview with NASCAR president Steve Phelps. Steve Phelps is a great guy. He's been on the podcast a couple of times at this point. I was able to interview him at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference last year in Boston. And I always learn a tremendous amount from him, not only about NASCAR, the sport and the business, but about the landscape in general with media rights and everything else. So we talked about a whole host of things, including their new series on Netflix. We talked about their new media rights deal with several new partners and the dichotomy that they had to decide between distribution versus increasing revenues. We talked about future race plans, including potentially international expansion and the Chicago street race. And Steve even broke some news on the podcast talking about a new ambassador program that NASCAR is launching where they're going to be paying their drivers to promote the sport, similar to the PGA Tours player impact program. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this interview. So let's get right into it. All right, Steve, first and foremost, thank you so much for doing this. I know you're a busy man this time of year, obviously leading the Daytona 500 this weekend, but I appreciate your time. Um, it's great to be here with you. Awesome. So let's start with Netflix. Obviously, the new NASCAR show came out, I believe, a few weeks ago at this point. Five episodes, I watched all of them immediately. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was an awesome look at uh, obviously the sport, but the teams and kind of how the playoff structure works and everything like that. Have you gotten any early feedback, indication on the success of the show or any, any idea of how much people are enjoying it? Yeah, so I think um, we, we were thrilled to partner with Netflix uh, and then Words and Pictures, who uh, Connor Shell was the producer of, uh, of the show um, or the five episodes. I enjoyed it as well. I put my fan hat on. I thought it was tremendous um, you know, to see behind the scenes and really look at who these guys are. I mean, they do extraordinary things on the race weekend when they strap into the cars, put their helmets on, you know, 200 miles per hour, you know, inches apart, you know, beating, banging at each other. You know, they, they're, it's extraordinary, right? People, normal people don't do that. I, I know I don't. I don't have any interest in doing that. So I think seeing the cool visual things that the show has, um, and I, I do think it's motorsports is unique. Um, no disrespect meant to full swing, uh, but you know, Drive to Survive and NASCAR Full Speed, there's a visual excitement that comes with this behind-the-scenes piece and getting to know these athletes. Um, it's, it's just a, that combination, I think, is really 
unique to motorsports, and I think it's really cool. Um, so for those that haven't seen it, please watch it. It's it is truly amazing, and I think for us, why is it important? Right, it's important because our avid fans are going to watch it and love it, right? Because they can't get enough of it. But it really is this idea of creating a, a consideration set for NASCAR for those that aren't NASCAR fans. And I think that's what Netflix shows do in particular. It's like, it, it doesn't mean that other outlets, um, distribution platforms um, are not important. Um, but Netflix is in a, they're just in a class by themselves with their sheer size. Um, and so for us to be there was important. And I think that we are going to create lifetime NASCAR fans through this vehicle. Yeah. So that was one of the things that I was interested about was partnering with Netflix versus kind of a traditional linear partner. You guys have done some of this stuff in the past on, on cable television. And this was obviously a little bit of a shift, I would say, in that model. It's something that has obviously become more popular, like you mentioned with Full Swing, The Drive to Survive. They've kind of carved this niche out where they can uh, do these content series and, and less focus on like live sports rights. Obviously, they have WWE now too, but uh, it's more of like documentary style stuff. Was there a reason... Um, why now was the right time? Like in my mind, I asked this, right? Because Netflix has sort of like caught up to cable in some way from distribution standpoint, like things have changed and they now have, you know, when WWE did their deal with Netflix, one of the things that I think most people were surprised about was from a distribution standpoint, it's roughly equal to what they were getting on traditional cable in the United States and Canada. Is that kind of one of the main drivers why now was the right time to make this switch? I think it's a couple of things. I it's not that we haven't done docu-series in the past. We did. You know, we did one on USA, which I thought was really good. You were kind of, the two negatives to that were whatever the content was from the previous week is what was being shown on that Thursday at 10 o'clock. The issue with Thursday at 10 o'clock, it was also airing right against Amazon's 30, Thursday, first year of Thursday Night Football. Not ideal. So if you missed the show, you didn't see this great content. So for us... The distribution platform, Netflix specifically, it's just not the domestic audience they have, which is huge. It's the global audience. So I know that we are trending in many countries, you know, in the top 10 shows that they had, like in England, the Netherlands, and all, all over the world. That's a cool thing, right? It's a good thing for NASCAR to be, you know, in people's home again, whether it's worldwide or here domestically, um, you know, it, it's, it's just good for the sport. It's good for all the sports that they do, whether it's, you know, golf or tennis or F1 or whatever it might be, rugby. Um, so for us to be in that consideration set from their perspective and green lighting our show or our series was important. I think the success of this show, would I be surprised if, you know, there was a, a season two and a season three? No, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And we're looking forward to that. Um, so it's, uh, and then the question of timing, it really is kind of the things were aligning. I think if I had a, a, a dollar for every time someone had said to me, whether it's a fan, a business colleague, or whomever, family member, hey, you guys should do a drive to survive. I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, it's just how things come together in our industry, which is somewhat fragmented. Um, you know, kind of race teams are race teams, drivers do their thing. So we had to convince an industry that this was a good thing for this sport, which of course it is. I love that. 
Keeping on the idea of, of media and, and fragmentation in general, I'm curious how, as the president of this sport, how you juggle what we'll call this new media landscape that we've entered, right? You guys announced a new set of media deals um, a few months ago or a year ago, maybe at this point, but uh, you have four different broadcasters, right? You have Fox, you have NBC, Warner Brothers, and Amazon. How do you guys think about the difficulty of like balancing less partners, more money, less money, more partners, and kind of that dichotomy that exists between you know, making the sport still accessible, but maximizing the revenue that you're able to get from the media rights? Yeah, so I'll start with this. So the media deals that we concluded um, and we announced at the end of November last year um, for our 2025 season, we are very happy with both the distribution as well as the dollars, but specifically going through the negotiations and what that looked like. The media rights landscape today and last year in the closing months of 2022 were challenged. Um, the most difficult that sports has experienced perhaps ever. And you saw that taking its toll, right? The PAC 12 doesn't exist because they couldn't do a big media deal. So they essentially imploded and all these teams uh, with the exception of two found homes with the SEC or the big 10 or the big 12. So, but it's emblematic of how difficult the market is a storied conference like the PAC 12, is literally gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So for us, we worked really hard to be ready for our media rights negotiation. And I would put things into two areas. There are sports that are what I would call must-have sports, and then there's everyone else. And in this country, must-have sports really goes about as deep as eight sports. And those are the ones that are going to get the distribution, and those are the sports that are going to get paid. So we got paid despite that the market that we were in was very difficult. And so for us, we actually have a fifth deal. So we had our two incumbents who are Fox and NBC. So they will just two for all of all of our national series in 24. When we turn the page uh, and the calendar to Gen 1 next year, we will welcome three new partners in addition to the incumbents. So we knew that Fox and NBC wanted to renew with us, which we were very happy with. They're great partners. But honestly, they couldn't afford it because we're, we're, our dollars were going up, right? And they're trying to manage their budget. So they wanted NASCAR for sure. So we sold the Xfinity series wholly, which we had never done before, to the CW, which is you know the fifth network here in the States. So five, 33 broadcast windows. But it's even more important that they, their parent company is a company called Nexstar that has 201 affiliates around the country, the largest affiliate group in the country. So they will help promote not just the Xfinity series, but NASCAR overall in market. And we're really excited about that partnership. Then Fox and NBC also gave back inventory on the Cup series. And so we were able to kind of thread the needle, get a deal with, with Amazon to do five races after the Fox portion of the season and they'll have all practice and qualifying. So you're like, well, listen, if people don't know practice and qualifying, well, do people really watch that? Yeah. We have a half a million people that watch every week. And so for Amazon to have practice and qualifying in addition to their races means they're going to promote NASCAR for an entire season, which is great, or certainly at least for half the season. 
and then Warner Brothers Discovery with Turner and Max, then they're greenlit for their their five races, and then Turner and Max have practice and qualifying for the balance of the season. So we're really excited about the five media partners all promoting NASCAR. And you talk about distribution and dollars. We announced that we did roughly a billion one a year. That's a lot of money um, and nearly a 40% increase from the last contract that we had had. In this marketplace, to me, we were in the 99th percentile of where we should have been. Um, And then from a distribution standpoint, we've got broadcast television for Cup Series. We obviously broadcast television for all Xfinity Series. And then kind of hedging the bet with what's going to happen with streaming with Amazon. And then this blended Max Turner thing with simulcast, um, kind of the best of both worlds with cable and uh, cable and streaming. And then you now have the announcement that happened last week with a streaming service, which is a joint venture between ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery. And why that's important is it just provides more eyeballs for us, particularly in the Fox portion of the season, because Fox doesn't have a traditional streaming service. So now they will. So those races that will be, it'll be simulcast on the streaming service, as well as what's going on with, you know, with FS1 when when we're on cable. Um, And I don't know exactly how it's going to work with big Fox. They may be simulcasting with that as well. I don't know. Um, but we're excited about those announcements. So it's really, to your point, trying to juggle the distribution versus the dollars. We're a bit piggish. I think we got both. Um, I think we optimized our dollars and we optimized the distribution. Yeah, I would agree. And it's difficult because the landscape is, is changing so much. Like you just said, you know, a new streaming service was announced last week. So um, I totally hear you on that. One of the things I'm curious about is... A lot of the conversation that I hear around NASCAR in general, when I tweeted out that we were going to be talking uh, and people put in some questions, one of the things that I got a number of times was just the popularity of today's drivers, right? If you think about sports in general, not even just NASCAR, but the individuals really seem to drive a lot of the value around the leagues. It seems, you know, companies like ESPN and other networks like that have a clear focus around promoting individuals versus, you know, even the teams, and even the leagues in some instance. In NASCAR, it feels like there's been this shift, right, where some of the most popular drivers the sport has ever had have retired over the last decade or two. And now there's a younger crop of drivers coming in. And I would argue that shows like full speed help with that and make them more popular. And and certainly the social media metrics would um, argue that that's true. How do you guys think about building up these individuals? And then specifically, one of the uh, one of the comments that I received was the idea around brand identity, right? Back in the day, uh, sponsors used to sponsor teams for an entire year or whatever. You would see a, a driver and you would see a sponsor and they kind of just went together. Do you think that's something that's, I don't know if it's hurting the, the, uh, the popularity of the driver, but is that connection missing in your mind? And is there anything you guys can do to, to put that back together? Yeah, so it's there are three different questions there, and I have three different answers for you. So I would say, yes, we had probably arguably the most popular drivers that NASCAR has ever had with Dale Earnhardt Jr., Carl Edwards, Danica Patrick, Tony Stewart, Jeff Gordon, and others all retiring, right? Which is a pretty big, massive hit to your driver's star power. So We've got these great young drivers like a Brian Blaney, a, you know, Bubba Wallace, uh, Daniel Suarez, um, 
William Byron, all, all these great, um, great young drivers that are, that are truly marketable, um, you know, good looking guys who strap into race cars and gals too, honestly, because we're really working to diversify the sport, both with people of color getting behind the wheel, but also women. And we have programs in place to do that. So that's on the sporting side or the competition side. On the marketing side, you're right. I think that we have not done a good enough job working with our race teams and our drivers to put them front and center. That is all changing. And it's all changing with really kind of two, what I would call fundamental um, opportunities for us. One is a brand new productions facility that we've built out in Concord, North Carolina, across from our research and development facility, uh, research and development facility. And that, you know, spent $60 million to do a state of the art production facility, which will do two things. One will be live event production, which we'll do for our races and actually other sports as well. And then what we do from content creation, and we are going to do more and better content than we've ever done front and center will be our drivers. You know, we'll have crews, you know, crew guys and crew chiefs and owners and other people that uh, people find interesting in the sport. But at the center will be our drivers. We need to make sure the brands themselves, the driver brands are out there. And so we talked about distribution on things like Netflix. For us, it's going to be distribution of this content on our own channels and then on other channels like a Netflix or an Amazon who we have the, the new partnership with um, and others that we are going to do, whether it's long form, short form, social, etc. And that is how we're going to drive um, interest in, in this next crop of drivers. The other piece that we're going to do is we're going to, um, we're creating something that we're calling a driver ambassador program, which we really haven't talked about a lot. So, I guess I'm breaking something here, um, which I'm okay with, um, which will beta test at the, at the end of the year. Essentially what the driver ambassador program is, is we'll pay the drivers to, for their time and effort and the impact that they make in whatever the channel of distribution might be. So back in the day, Jeff Gordon went on, on Saturday night live. If, you know, we can get, Brian Blandy going Saturday Night Live or Bubba Wallace going Saturday Night Live. Well, we are, he's going to be incented to do that both financially. So the net effect is that we are going to build the brands and build the driver brands. And if we have to pay them to do that for their time and effort, I, I probably people like less seem short-sighted that you would need to pay them. I don't care. We're going to pay them and it's going to work. And that's really what we need to do because the drivers are the show right? Literally no one wants to hear from me other than, other than you, Joe, and apparently your listeners. Um, it, it just, you know, I'm not the star. People who work at, at NASCAR are not the star. You know, we are, uh, I'll put it nice. We're the government, right? We, we do, we have a job to do and we do it um, to officiate the sport, to help grow the sport. You know, we're the behind the scenes puppeteer. Um, we are, we are not the show and we never want to be the show. It's kind of like a, NBA or an NFL game, if, if the refs are the star of the game, then you've had a bad game, right? Um, and I'm not suggesting that they're not fouls or they're not, you know, infractions that happen. But what it seems like 
the flags are overzealous in the NFL or the calls are, you know, a bit much in the NBA. Same thing with us, right? We want to be behind the scenes and we want to be the quiet leader of this sport. And that's who we are. I love that. The ambassador program sounds awesome because. It, and one other thing, Joe, because I, did, I didn't answer your last, the last portion of your question, yeah. which is around the sponsors. Back in the day, you're right. The sponsors ruled and, and they helped drive um, interest in NASCAR and the drivers. They were in grocery stores. They were on television. They were on, you know, they're, you know, kind of ubiquitous with, you know, mainstream. And starting in 2009, that kind of changed as corporate America had to pull back because of the recession. And it just never came back, which why we were slow to react, in, in my opinion, to the things that we are going to do now moving forward in order to put those brands front and center, put those drivers front and center. So if the brands are unwilling to do it because it's just a different a different thing. You don't see a lot of stand-ups and or anything else with you know other sports as well. It's not just NASCAR. They're used in other ways, right? So athletes are used in a big way with you know content creation, social, um, and that's kind of how brands are using them. And I'm not suggesting they're not using them with NASCAR. It's just not as kind of mass distributed to an audience and put it in your face. Um, so for us. We are certainly encouraging all of our sponsor brands and team sponsor brands and driver sponsor brands to promote their drivers. Um, but we need to not wait for it to happen. We need to do it ourselves. And that's exactly what. Nice. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the sponsorship aspect is part of it. But the ambassador program is part of it too, right? I was going to say that this is sort of what the PGA Tour tried to do with the player impact program, which I think was a good idea. I think that you know they obviously just had other challenges that arose <laughs> rather than uh, pay, paying their athletes to bring uh, attention to the sport. But that's neither here nor there. Well, and to, the, and to that point, their program was primarily on social media focused. Yeah. Ours is far broader than that. Um, and I think we'll have a greater impact and Listen, there are reasons why they did that, which, you know, you're aware of, and I think your listeners are aware of, which I, I won't get into. Um, but ours is what I know ours is not is, hey, this is just we're going to throw money at the drivers so they're going to be friendly with us. I, I don't care. We're going to throw money at the drivers that are going to help drive our sport forward. That's what we're going to do. And it's important for us to do that. And by the way, They've got huge buy-in for for us doing this. Mm -hmm. And I think in the teams, I think initially were a little bit reticent and like, hey, hey I'm not sure how this is going to work. Our whole industry is on board with what this is going to be, and it's important. And it's going to work. Yeah, and I think, too, it's probably spread amongst more individuals. Like the PGA Tour, the problem with it to me was that it was really just like super top heavy, right? It was the biggest stars of the sport and they were getting extra money for, for promoting. They weren't even really promoting it, right? They were doing what they normally do and were just getting paid more money for it. So that's exactly right. Yeah. I think that this Hence is the throwing money. Yeah. Yeah. I figured that's where you were going with it. Um, <laughs> all right. Last question is around scheduling. You guys obviously have done the clash in LA. You did the Chicago street race. Where is NASCAR headed next? There's obviously been some rumors about potentially international races, just whatever you can tell me about kind of where you guys were thinking from a schedule standpoint. Yeah, I, for us, we really started schedule what we'll call schedule variation, right? So for 20 years, we essentially ran at the same places, almost at the same weekend every year. 
every, you know, it's just the same. And so the schedule would come out. It was a collective yawn because, oh, that's shocking. We're going to Richmond twice. We're going to Kansas twice. We're going to Darlington twice. We're, it's just, it was, there was nothing there. And so we made a concerted effort that we were going to be bold in our schedule. So starting in 21, we had lit at, to that point, the boldest schedule we'd have in the history, the changes that we had made for 21. And you talked about the class of the Coliseum. So we built purpose built within the LA Coliseum, a quarter mile track. Um, that was a surprise to people, right? We had never done that before. And it was part proof of concept part. Hey, this is going to be really cool. And the net effect of it is we had 72% of the people who went to that first class at the Coliseum had never been to a NASCAR race. Okay. Ratings were higher than they had been for a clash in you know, more than a decade. Schedule variation works. So you had brought up the Chicago street race, Chicago street race. We had never raced in the streets in our 75 year history ever, ever, ever first time. And so we were excited about what that would be for our sport and what it could be. So not to top the 72, but 80% of the people who bought tickets to Chicago that to that street race around the 4th of July last year had never been to a NASCAR race. Oh, and by the way, the ratings were the second highest behind the Daytona 500 that we had last year. Schedule variation works. And so are we going to continue to be bold in our, in what we're doing with our schedule? Yes. We're racing at Iowa for the first time at a cup race, a track that we own. Um, we're going back to the Oval in Indy. We are going back for a second year for the Chicago street race. Hopefully we won't have the seven inches of rain that we had on that day, but we got it in, which was a miracle. Um, but I'm, it's nothing to announce now. And you brought up international. Are we exploring international races? Yes. And do I think in 25 that we'll have one or two international races? Yes, I believe that we'll do that. And that's what we're working towards right now, um, which would be the first time in our history that we would pay, a, we would go and have a points paying race outside of our borders. And it really comes down to not just schedule variation, but as you think about NASCAR, we want our fans and non-fans alike to think about NASCAR in a different light. And that light is that two words, bold and innovative. That's what we're going to be um, in schedule variation. What we're doing with our races themselves, formats, um, what we're doing with our drivers, um, having new media partners, all of it's bold and innovative. And that's what we're going to be. Um, and that is the mantra that we've used with our industry and our own people over the last three years. Fortunately, it's working. And I think the fruits of that labor, you can see them the best example I would use is, is our new media rights deals. They were just extraordinary in a time of quite, you know, just difficulty in that marketplace. Yeah, I, I agree. It's been fun to see uh, you guys try new things, right? Not even just like the races, but you know, Netflix and everything else in between, obviously you have the ambassador program and it feels like the sport is, is changing for the better to a degree because there's just new and exciting. And, and as you mentioned, bold things happening, um, which has been fun to see, but Steve, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck this weekend with the Daytona 500 and, and good luck this year. Thank you, my friend. It's always a pleasure to see you.